Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the House That Hinky Built podcast. As always, I am your host, Jackson Frank, and per usual, I'm hosting Sunspotted by Green Room. Today, I'm going to be joined by Evan Gualberto. Uh, he, has a, he has a YouTube channel with a bunch of uh, awesome videos. That's E-V-I-N-G-U-A-L-B-E-R-T-O. Um, and so definitely recommend checking out his stuff there. It does a lot of awesome, insightful videos on YouTube. You can find his page under the name I just spelled for you. Um, but today we're going to talk about the Sixers free agency moves so far. They have brought back Furkan Korkmaz. They retained Danny Green last night. Um, they've signed Georges Niang and Andre Drummond. Uh, and Evan just watched a lot of basketball, a lot of NBA, and does a great job breaking down film. So we're going to get his insights today about a couple of new new guys. Maybe get his thoughts on the Danny Green uh, situation, not situation, the Danny Green contract and who Danny Green is as a player. Then maybe dive into a little bit of the Ben Simmons stuff, but... Um, we've talked a lot about that on this podcast over the past month and a half or so, um, but we'll see if Evan has anything that he feels like he'd like to provide. Um, but Evan is here, and we're going to talk about some uh, some NBA stuff, some Sixers stuff, so I hope this is insightful because uh, Evan does a great job. Hey, Evan, how are you doing today? I'm doing all right. Doing all right. How are you doing? I am, I am doing well. I'm excited to talk about some Sixers stuff. They can't make a ton of... Ton of big moves in, uh, you know, in free agency, of course, given their financial situation. But uh, a couple of a couple of signings here, and I'm drumming in George Niang, and uh, you watch a lot of NBA, break down a lot of film. I really enjoy the stuff you do with, with Samson Folk on bouncing around, uh, always doing random random players and whatnot. So I figured you'd be a great uh, person to bring on and talk about the the tenth man on the Jazz and the the ninth or tenth or eleventh man on the Lakers to break break down a couple of uh, guys who come off the bench for the Sixers. Yeah, this is my niche, fringe guys, you know. Well, I mean, Drummond's not really a fringe guy, but... Yeah. But rotationally, I would say that at this point he is. But yeah, um, cool. So let's let's just start with Drummond. Um, he's a pretty polarizing player. You know, obviously a two-time All-Star made All-NBA team about a half decade ago. Um, is not that player, uh, of course, at the stage of his career. But I'm curious, kind of what... Evan, what's kind of your evaluation of him? Where do you land on kind of the Drummond debate? Um, and, and maybe give us a rundown of what skills you think he can provide, maybe some of the flaws he might, the Sixers might have to account for in any lineup that he is uh, deployed in. So I think I am generally not a contract, um, and that's how you evaluate a player's value because I coach you know, high schoolers. Mm-hmm. This, there, there, there is no contract there. You just kind of stuck <laughs> with them. But um, so – Drummond in this in in this particular situation is I think a great fit because you have Dwight Howard leaving. And so and based on what you're paying him the veterans minimum that's that's about as low risk as you can get with a guy who is and I checked this earlier because when I first looked at it I didn't believe it but he's younger than Anthony Davis, <laughs> right? So mm-hmm. he's a guy who if nothing else in an ideal situation, he's playing 10, 12 minutes a game in the playoffs, mm-hmm. um, can fill in those Embiid minutes. And my, you know, rebounder, he's a stat patter, yes, but he is still a big body with solid hands. And he is, there is no substitute, there is no replicating being that size. So he's going to come away with a lot of rebounds just by being there. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think the biggest thing that I thought about when he was added to the, when, you know, he was announced is he's not the best playmaker, 
but his playmaking can move the needle in a very mm-hmm. small way, but in a way that you know Dwight Howard never could. So mm-hmm. I'm thinking specifically about running dribble handoffs with shooters, and the 76ers love to run, and you know this is jumping into coaching stuff right away, that <laughs> gut Chicago action that we mm-hmm. saw a lot of with Phoenix. Um, gut Chicago, where Tobias would get that um, pin down from Ben Simmons and then yep. get a dribble handoff from Embiid. Drummond has a sense of familiarity with Tobias Harris from their time together in Detroit. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. That too. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think, and I think that that last point is really important, or kind of the last broad point that I'm sure we'll get a little more into. But the the ball skills, you know, Drummond is a guy who has, you know, a lot. He has a lot of viral gaffes because he's a little off little overzealous with, you know, the application of the ball skills. But at the same time, the Sixers are going from a guy like in Dwight Howard, who similarly had, had had some plays last year with the Sixers uh, where he was overly confident in his ability to do things with the ball in his hands. And so um, at the very least, I think he represents a, a notable upgrade in kind of skill, and I want to say skill, like impact and, and talent over Howard. Of course, he's not going to be playing a ton where the gap is going to be that broad. It's not going from like Dwight is a starter to Drummond is a starter. But I think that does matter, you know, because – Yes, there are greater issues the Sixers have beyond a backup center, um, but I think that I think Drummond is an, is an upgrade in that regard. Um, but I, and I, I do want you to maybe kind of get into you know how do you think Drummond can fit offensive with those ball skills because he has a better pass than Dwight. Um, for anyone who was curious about kind of the the action that, that Evan is alluding to, and and you did a good job of kind of specifying it, but the Devin Booker version is the is the one where he starts kind of blow at the baseline for anyone who was curious, uh, and then would come around and flow in a dribble handoff right around the elbow at the top of the key with John Durant and um, turn on the Suns game for eight minutes, and you'll see them run it seven times for Devin Booker. Um, Sixers do a similar thing, and I, I the part about Tobias too is important because they had really good chemistry when Tobias first kind of broke out in Detroit. Part of it was his chemistry and dribble handoffs with with Andre Drummond there about three or four years ago before he was involved in the Blake Griffin deal, um, which is crazy to think that was already you know, half a decade ago or three, <laughs> three or four years ago. But um, what are the sorts of things you think Drummond can do you know, with his passing ability to run dribble handoffs that fit well with the Sixers like to do um, with Tobias, with Seth Curry, um, maybe with Tyrese Maxey next year, um, those sorts of guards who can maybe do a little bit with the ball in their hands as well? So I think it um, it helps their strengths while also addressing some of the weaknesses in the sense that you don't have many necessarily like creators in, and you know, there's a lot of debate to use the creator term, but shot creation is something that is a premium for the Sixers Mm -hmm. who can really, you, I think you could kind of see it in that Hawk series where when, (laughs) when Embiid sits, like what does the offense look like? Who, mm-hmm. who is the hub of the offense? And I don't necessarily want to say that Drummond could be the hub of the offense, but him being able to operate at the elbow or just on the move and then turn around dribble handoff like he did so often. Um, Doc loves his horn sets. And <laughs> Dwight, I, I went through as much film as I could in preparation for this. I don't think Dwight had many sets out of horns where he was entered the ball and then he was allowed to make decisions. Drummond mm-hmm. is a little better at that. And so you buoy those bench minutes. And again, I'm never really thinking about an Embiid-Drummond duo on the court <laughs> at the same time, just because I don't think that's 
I don't want to think about that. Um, and I, <laughs> I don't think I any Sixers fans either do either. So you're not alone on that one. Exactly. But so those those bench lineups where, you know, at times in the playoffs, especially Tobias was the only starter and you had a bunch of mm-hmm. bench guys running the show. Now you have a little bit of variance in what you can do because Dwight's, mm-hmm. that center spot isn't just a screen setter and a hard roller you have some stuff and Drummond every now and then, you know, a keeper play full speed, fake dribble handoff, turn the corner. Maybe he can get to the rim. That's not bad. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, and I think the, the, the theme that I'm taking away from how you think you can work schematically with the Sixers is there's a, there's a bit of continuity between, you know, when Joel goes to the, cause Joel loves to run dribble handoffs. He's running with JJ Redick. He ran with Seth Curry last year. Um, occasionally he'll do some two man things with Tobias in the starting five. Um, but that's, you know, when Joel is not getting his, his mid post face ups or his back to the basket or those pick and rolls where he just kind of ends up with a free throw line and works from there. They're running a lot of DHO things. And I think Drummond can at least provide a level of continuity that you haven't seen in previous backup bigs. And that's an important thing is if, because everything centers around Joel on both ends, and that means everyone else has to work off of that. And so it can be jarring when you go from Embiid to Dwight, who is a very different style of player. Dw- you know, Dwight is a, is a very good roller, a pretty good screener. Even though he sits a lot of illegal screens, he's still someone who creates a lot of separation and advantages for guys there. Joel is kind of a guy who isn't – he's not a, he didn't, he's an inconsistent screener. He's not much of a roller because he's not a high flyer above the rim. And so that can make things tougher for Tobias – or Seth Curry or, or those other guys because it's a different style of big man that you have to adapt to. Whereas, of course, Drummond is a very different player than Joel when you get the nuances. But that just ability to maintain some level of abil- uh, maintain some level of ability in the DHO actions, um, b- especially because of the Tobias stuff, because Doc loves running those Tobias plus three or four bench guys. I'm sure we'll see it again next year. That matters. That, that's a nice plus to have um, because continuity is important. Guys who can know their role still. Everyone who's going to play around Joel has to know their role to maximize what they can do when he's off the court, especially. So I like that point a lot. Um, what concerns do you have, though? You know, we mentioned some of the positives about Trimble. Work. What concerns do you have offense? And I do want to get into the defense as well because I think he is a an interesting player to analyze defensively, as anyone is really, because defense is a really tough thing to gauge. But offensively, what are some of the concerns you might have, and the offense or the Sixers will have to work around or? you know, price into the things they do when Joel is off the floor and Drummond is, you know, flank areas to re- replacing him in those 10 to 18 minutes a night that I'm sure we'll see throughout most of the season. Well, I mean, it's, it depends on the level of maturity that you're going to get the level of, um, locked inness, um, or I guess buy-in is, is the better way to phrase it. So if, Underdrum buys in that he is in that Dwight Howard role, that he is just booing those bench lineups in those, you know, 12 minutes ideally in the playoffs, maybe less, maybe more a little. But during the regular season, a player, young players especially, and he's been in the league a while, but he's still a young player to me. He has a tendency to drift. He has a tendency to, we all saw, like you said, at the top, the viral stuff where you know he has the ball up top and he's faking a dribble handoff and he's going and then he ends up with this like twisting sky hook <laughs> that he comes back down with it's the stuff that i worry about with uh backup players is if you're running the same sets for him that you are joel Embiid. Drummond is a guy who has been an all-star has had accolades to the level that nobody else on the bench 
might have. And so he sees Joel doing certain things and you're running the same packages, the same sets. So my worry is, does he start to think, oh, I can do that. Oh, let me get some of that action. And now mm-hmm. you're... And so, you know, that level of buy-in is, hey, we need you to do this specifically. And I think Doc can get that out of him. He's a veteran coach. He's, you know, coached a team to a championship and so on and so forth. But Andre Drummond has been on bad teams and maybe has developed some bad habits. And that's mm-hmm. that's the only thing I really worry about is, is he going to go back to hunting stats instead of doing what is required of him and so on? Yeah, and yeah, I, I, I think, you know, Last year he was obviously on the Lakers for the you know the last two or three months, two months or so, um, and, and that was not a bad team, of course. Um, and he deserves some responsibility for some of his struggles there, but it wasn't it wasn't the context of the Lakers, right? You know, AD was not allowed. LeBron was out of line for most of the time when he came back. He was still clearly not himself um, to a degree. LeBron was still great in a lot of ways, um, but the ankle was still bothering him. He wasn't LeBron, you know, and so I don't think that is like I don't think that that's an evident. It's not evidence that, oh, look, you put him on a contender and he still struggled with some of the same things because there was a little bit of, there was just some instability with that team. And now you can say the same thing with the Sixers. There was this large unknown about what Ben Simmons, like his status and whatnot. Um, but, but my point is, like, I don't think that, like, oh, he, he struggled at times with the Lakers means that, like, it's not just a bad team thing. I think it's not just bad teams. It's a stability level and in, in, in known variables that I don't think were always there for Dwight or for Drummond on a night-to-night basis. Um what do you? What did you make of Drummond's stint with the Lakers last year? Like, what things did you think he still did well? What What's just kind of your perception of that of that run in LA for him? So I think it's not to continue to repeat himself, but you're you're buoying the lineups without the stars. So mm-hmm. I was looking through. I went back and looked through like his his high assist games because I wanted to focus in on perhaps his playmaking. And, you know, when he catches the ball in the in the post, whether it's low or mid or high, he can he can play out of that and he can he can generate a shot or at least force rotations that will eventually generate a shot. So he had some success in there. It's just in the playoffs when teams can really key in, when the scout is ratcheted up, when you're not falling for a pass fake, pump fake like you I mean, you shouldn't anyway, but, you know, it's the regular season, so you tend to bite a little bit more. Just your mind drifts. If he can sort of be able to toe the line between the things that are asked of him and showing he can do a little more, because that's what I think he did with the Lakers, is when he was asked to do certain things, he did them better than I think he was given credit for. And you know, the mistakes he made and the defensive gaffes at times, he, he got really, he got killed on those, at least based on what I'm, what I saw on social media, he got killed for that (laughs) stuff, which I, you know, I don't think is fair because when a player does well, or when a player is doing his job, then I think they deserve as much credit for that as they do when they receive criticism for not doing their job. Mm Mm-hmm. And and he had he had some good games in LA. Like don't get me wrong, like I I can't remember any off the top of my head, but I do remember watching some of those games in LA and being impressed with what Drummond provided on both ends. Whether it was the the rebounding, the lob threat, some of the playmaking there. Um, and I and I think just circling back a little bit to the Dwight comparison, what's important is 
the Sixers, I don't think had a lot of successful act. Like I, I would have to look at the numbers, but you touch on maybe like Dwight runs about a horn. I don't think they had a lot of successful actions, whether it was a made shot or a good shot, um, because Dwight has the inconsistent screen setting because he's, you know, he doesn't quite have the the dribble handoff craft. Like there's a, there's a very delicate balance to the dribble handoff. You know, it's an, it's an art. You know, Nikola Jokic is a master at it. Joel Embiid is pretty good at it. Um, Al Horford in this prime was excellent at it. Um, and so, I, like, I think it's not just to give the ball to the guard and, like, make it work. There's a certain level of understanding with angles and when you hand the ball off and when you let it go. Um, and so that was part of the, my issue is they tried to run some stuff through Dwight off the bench in that and out of the horns that Dwight, that Doc loves to run. And it doesn't, didn't work because Dwight just isn't that level of guy with the ball in his hands. Drummond has a little more craft and savvy there that I think will help him, especially with the continuity between him and Tobias Harris there. Um, and I do, and obviously there's, you can look at Drummond through both just the lens of him as a player, but then you also, with the Sixers, you want to look at it. How does he provide an upgrade, if at all, over his, his predecessor in, in Dwight? And I think we've touched on a lot of the, the ways he does offensively at least. And just to quantify it, of course, I don't want impact metrics to ever be the be-all, end-all of analysis. But for instance, in estimated plus-minus the last three years, Dwight Howard in 2018, 285th. Drummond in 2018, 18th. Or 2019, excuse me. 2020, Dwight Howard was 100th. Drummond was 81st. Last year, Drummond was 121st and Dwight was 173rd. So that's by no means to say that he's a better player because of those reasons, but I think it is a way to explain here's why we think he's a better fit offensively and here's why a little more utility offensively and here's what some of the numbers are saying um, about that. I don't want to go too far into that sort of thing or have a, you know have some grand debate about or discussion about it, but let's get to the defense. What do you make of Drummond's defense? What's the best way to utilize him on that end and how to you does he represent a a change in both impact and maybe style compared to Dwight. So I think in terms of style, you get to, I mean, nobody is Joel Embiid, obviously. <laughs> um, but Joel, like I, I did this um, for, I did the, an episode of bouncing around in his, in Joel's first game back after the long um, time away with the injury. And I believe mm-hmm. it was against the, the Wolves. Yeah, yep. because it was Carl Anthony Towns, and you know the the spacing threat of Carl Anthony Towns, Cat's ability to be the offensive hub above the break even, and to do all of that stuff, and to be able to as a movement shooter even, and Joel like having just come back from the injury, it blew me away how mobile <laughs> he was because you forget when you're not watching him because you know how big he is, but you. There is no accounting for how well he moves at his size. Drummond doesn't provide that, obviously, but he provides that more than Dwight Howard did. Mm-hmm. And I remember specifically in that episode of Bouncing Around, the Carl Anthony Towns would come down in a double drag situation and then run. Basically, he would cut to the basket after setting a screen and then mm-hmm. receive a screen in the short corner and exit screen, so it'd pop out to yeah. the corner. I, lo- I love that set. It's it's beautiful, but can, continue. <laughs> right, yeah. And so, but my point is that the first three times the Wolves ran it, Embiid was there, and Cat <laughs> couldn't get anything. The next, the next three times they ran it, Dwight Howard was in, and they got an open three. <laughs> Um, they generated another open three because Dwight, you know, another player had to come draw. Basically, you were giving up quite a bit of mobility. And Dwight's an athletic guy still at his age, but mm-hmm. Drummond 
has the length, has the hands, has more quickness than Dwight does. So that represents Mm -hmm. an upgrade in that sense. Mm -hmm. Um, And in another, I think it's just that at his age, Dwight would rather use his fouls than not use his fouls. He, you know, he, (laughs) if, if he has to foul out in 10 minutes, he's going to do that. But Mm -hmm. it, you sort of, it's a wear and tear on your other players. If you know, your, your backup big man can't stay on the floor. And Mm -hmm. that's what, that's what Dwight Howard had a problem with. Right. So Drummond is a player who, you know, we're, we're talking about the mobility and stuff. He is a player who can stay on the floor. He's not going to use those. He's not going to waste those fouls mm. and because I think he wants to do stuff. Um, he wants to take the challenge of he has to show at the level of the screen or, you know, he wants to be able to stunt at the ball handler and then drop back and deflect the lob because, he, like I said earlier, he does like his stats. So <laughs> a, a steal in terms of a deflected lob is, is I think... Um, something that Doc is going to have to, you know, work with him on, but he'll be happy to toe the line and have him try and chase those stats. So he wants to stay on the floor because also uh, on the offensive end, you know, if you if you're in foul trouble, you're going to get pulled out. So if Drummond is on the floor, he's not necessarily going to be as big a foul risk as Dwight. So you don't have to worry about it on that end. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's just Dwight. I think Dwight was a fine backup center regular season, and you know, like he was, he he provided worth and utility, not worth that. That makes it sound way too. Uh, <laughs> he provided value as a basketball player. That is a much more uh, delicate phrase that I would prefer to uh, <laughs> use, um, because of course he has a he's a human. Um, but but there is there there is issue when you when you have an offensive foul in one year stints, then you have a goaltend and you you foul a guy for no reason because you chase a block. Um, Dwight did that a lot like that. Ha- and so when you're out there for 14 minutes a night and you have those sorts of plays, your costly plays are resulting in turnovers, the end of a possession or a bucket for the opposition. That's really impactful, especially in a smaller, like a limited sample there. Um, and what I thought, and, you know, touching back to the Drummond in LA where I thought he was best defensively like at times they try to play him in deep drop. That's just not his game. He's not, he, it goes back to your idea of that. Like sometimes he, his focus or his, his focus on the play at hand or the task at hand can wander if he's not like asked to be proactive and that, and you, sh- you have to be proactive in deep drop, but I don't think Drummond always plays with that, with that sentiment in mind, but you play him higher. You let him use it. He has phenomenally quick hands. You let him like, he means average over a steal per game. I know steals are not like the end all be all, but average over a steal per game every season of his career. Um, he's going into year 10 and just phenomenally quick hands. Uh, that's really nice. Like he's got this really awesome play, like ability to, you kind of do the the pickpocket of a ball handler at his size is like impressive to be able to get low enough um, flexibility wise to do the pickpocket of ball handlers or typically, you know, lower the ground. Um, and so that, that's where I think they'll need, that's like, and you can, you can correct me if I, if you feel differently, of course, or add your own thoughts, but I think that's the best way in pick and roll defense, at least is to let him play the level of the screen, show his mobility, show his active hands, keep him engaged or at least make him feel engaged because even though you should be engaged in deep drop, I don't think Drummond's history in that coverage always reflects a similar held belief by him. And I don't want to get into the, the psychoanalysis analysis of it, but he just doesn't play with the same level of, I think, kind of mental acuity 
or execution in deep trout compared to showing the, the level of the screen, hedging, things like that. Um, would you agree? Is that the, like, is the best way to like keep him involved defensively to let him play make and pick and rolls and whatnot rather than play deep drop? I think so, because now you are putting him in a position where he is slightly more, slightly more proactive than reactive. Because I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's like as as a high school coach, like you you can tell a player as much as you want that like this is your responsibility and you need to be up here. You know, I'm tapping my forehead. Like <laughs> you need to be you need to be in here, up here, active and awake. But that doesn't necessarily happen because you can watch play, you can watch things develop, and then you get lost watching. And mm-hmm. I think Drummond is better when he has a chance to see the ball sort of swipe at the ball or you know ha- the illusion of being able to see being able to swipe the ball like there are mm-hmm. openings there and like you're saying you're going to get much more engagement with him up there than I think in deep drop and that's not necessarily um an unfair criticism I think because he's shown that he has a tendency to fall asleep at times when you put him in that coverage but when he's in this other coverage, then you know you're starting to cook with, you're starting to cook with a little more grease, and he is as engaged as, he, not necessarily that you want him to be because you want him to be on all the time, but as engaged as he's going to get um, in those spots anyway. Yeah, I, and I agree there. I think obviously the. The ripple effect is that of that is it puts a little more strain or considerably more strain on the the low man there the weak side tag or things like that. Um, if you're if you're a little, if you're empowering your big man your defensive anchor quote unquote of a given lineup because you know the guy who protects the rim the most is kind of the guy who gets the defensive anchor you know man, mantle even if it's not actually one he can adeptly carry. Um, and with the Sixers, I think part of the drawback of that will be that, that they haven't typically had, or last year they didn't have a lot of size off the bench, and Doc loves to, of course, run the bench every lineup. You know, they're, they're playing four-guard lineups with Dwight a lot last year. Of course, you know George Hill is gone. Um, they brought in George's Niang that we'll talk about in a little bit, who has some size and I think is a much more playable option at the four um, than Mike Scott was last season. Um, but that's that's kind of the, the the other side of it is if that Drummond doesn't make the play there and the roller gets into space, um, there's a potential that a guy like Furkan Korkmaz, Tyrese Maxey, um, maybe I mean Matisse Thybulle could probably be pretty. I mean Matisse Thybulle, you can probably rely on for among guards. You can feel comfortable with him as a low man there. Um, but that's that's kind of the ripple effect of it. If you do have more aggressive defensive coverage, it forces those taggers to have a little more in, kind of pressure on, on how they execute their responsibilities there. Um, before we shift to Niang, though, I do want to ask, like, what do you make of Drummond room protection? We talked about the playmaking, mostly with the active hands and the steal numbers and whatnot. But how do you feel about him as a room protector, whether it's in pick and rolls, you know, helping on helping on a drive as a rotator, things like that? How would you assess him there, strength, weaknesses? What's What should Sixers fans kind of know and understand about who he is as a room protector in the in the minutes that he'll play without Joel next year? Uh, well, it's uh, – <laughs> so it's uh, – again – I, I keep using the word like engagement um, is how engaged is he? If he's engaged, I think he's a very serviceable rim protector. I think um, Dwight Howard, his instincts were unreal, even with his dwindling athleticism. Um, so you can't expect that necessarily, mm-hmm. but Drummond does have the ability to cover more ground than Dwight um, just by virtue of 
not being Dwight Howard at his age. So I think it's a little bit of fool's gold. When you look at Drummond and you are used to watching Dwight Howard, you think, oh man, the things he could do. Um, it's it's a little disappointing to me, his, his rim protection, um, especially as a help side guy, um, mm-hmm. because I think... I think maybe it's because the bad moments stick out more, but it's he has a tendency to, and it's not the white side level, but he does have a tendency to like try and chase things that he shouldn't be chasing. And mm. that's where he gets in trouble a little bit because, you know, the problem with being that mobile, that big, that athletic is you think you have the time to cover that ground if you make a mistake. But, you know, teams... Are have been going at Drummond for a while now. They know the they know the scout on him. They know that if they can get it, they can get him to jump on something. You then it's a bunch of dominoes, and you're you're going to be able to get a good shot elsewhere. So I think it's it leaves a little to be desired. And again, like he's still young. Again, you know, younger than most people would expect, even though he's been in the league a while. You hope that he can turn it around, but at this point, he's been in the league, I believe, I think since 2012. Um, entering, his ten, entering his 10th year, yeah. Same same draft class as AD, Brad Beal, Jamie Miller, so they're entering that, that 10th season already. Right, and so you, you you can sort of talk yourself into, oh, maybe maybe this is the year he's going to turn it around. But I, I don't... Um, if I'm a Sixers fan and I'm expecting Dwight Howard-level rim protection, again... Drummond will provide value by being able to be on the floor more than Dwight because, you know, he's not going to get those silly foul calls and he's not going to take frustration fouls to the level that Dwight did. Um, But if you're expecting um, the Dwight Howard level instincts, that's not going to be there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think I think, and not that you're saying otherwise, but I do. I think I mean, Sixers fans will be accustomed to the the block, the chase chasing of blocks. Dwight did that at times last year. Dwight was, I think, yeah, I would I would absolutely agree that Dwight was more proactive and attentive on those weak side rim protection responsibilities. But even but Sixers fans will be accustomed to that part at least. Um, but yeah, on the age, he uh, he turns 28 on August 10th. So anyone listening to this, uh, get ready to wish Andre a happy birthday next Tuesday. Um, and for for fun, um, to reference my my friend uh, Mike Chiodo's uh, long scene and bit on Twitter, he is younger than Buddy Heald. Buddy Heald is uh, about half a year older, and he was drafted four years later. Um, but yeah, I think I think people are surprised by how young Andre Drummond is. But um, I think that just to wrap this segment up, the general theme I get, and you can obviously chime in as well, is that he offers more offensively, a little more diversity of looks than Dwight did, and more continuity with Joel or you know with Joel's style. I should say he's not going to play with Joel. Um, though we did see, I think, like a minute and a half of Dwight and Joel minutes last year. Um, so maybe we'll get that again this year. <laughs> not that I want to. Doc, Doc, if you're listening, I'm not advocating for that. Um, but a little more continuity with the DHO stuff you can run. Uh, more playmaking on the ball, a little more ball skills. Defensively, um, the playmaking will help buoy lineups because the Sixers like to run bench-heavy lineups and it's, they're going to struggle to score without a guy like Joel's with Joel's you know, ability to create on his own. So that helps. Um, the weak arm protection will be a drop-off from Dwight. Um, but you'll get similar stuff with the offensive rebounding. Even though the, the finishing numbers are pretty ridiculously poor, I think he shot 53% at the rim last year, according to estimated plus-minus. Um, a little better than previous years, 60-61%, but a guy of his size would be better. Um, but you're going to get that similar kind of offensive rebounding prowess. Um, so for all those reasons, they're, he's not better than Dwight in everything, but they, they coalesce together to be a more impactful backup center 
um, which matters. It's not a huge upgrade because, again, he's only going to play 10 to 20 minutes a night. He'll he'll have some nights where he plays 30 to 35 because Joel is a guy who either they're going to rest or will we'll have little minor you know nicks and, and bruises and whatnot that will keep him out of some games. But um, that's my impression of kind of him and also based on what you've offered us today. Is there anything else you want to add before we switch, switch gears to uh, Georges Niang? No. Cool. Um, so let's let's get on to uh, Niang here. You know, he was a guy who was kind of on the fringes of, of the Jazz rotation. Um, he was in the playoff rotation for a bit. I don't remember if he got played out of it by the end of that Clippers series, um, but definitely got some rotation minutes at times in the series. Struggled, struggled you know, with some things, had some pretty poor um, minutes. But regardless, he was a rotation player on a team that was quite good last year, despite its disappointing ending um, from their perspective. Um, but what's what's your scout report of, of Niang? He, if we're going to talk about age, um, he is older than Andre Drummond, and he is first year with 2016 as well. So um, they're similar age, but Niang is a nice little role player. What is the scout report you can offer Sixers fans on their latest uh, power forward edition? So um, just so I looked at two different places, I asked around to a bunch of um, basketball minds I trust. So. A spot-up shooter, at the very least, um, per basketball index. Um, he finished the season sixth among power forwards for three-point shot making, which uh, takes degree of difficulty into account. So he was um, tied with Danilo Gallinari. So, you know, take okay. that however you will. It's it's not bad. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, just... Oh, for Synergy... Um, he was in the 85th percentile in the league on spot ups. So I'm, you know, these numbers have to be taken with a grain of salt, um, somewhat mm-hmm. because of the high. I didn't filter very much out of it, but he finished among the likes of Duncan Robinson, um, <laughs> Nicholas Batum, um, and Michael Bridges. So he's a great spot up threat who you're paying very little, and he's used to mm-hmm. not playing very much. So that's nice. Um, yeah, so um, I think the thing that I wanted to say is it's a great pickup for the Sixers because it gives them some much-needed forward depth. So mm-hmm. outside of Tobias and Ben, you know, if you're measuring him as a sort of four, everyone mm-hmm. else they played was like a a two-slash-three instead of a three-slash-four. And Korkmaz yeah. is really the only rotation player outside their big three that's above six-six. So Niang is taller than that, so that's good. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's. I mean, it may sound simplistic on the surface, but that does matter. The Sixers ran so many small bench-oriented lineups last year, um, and even Furkan is a guy who's like I don't think he really plays functionally at six seven, right? I mean, he's a perimeter-oriented player who isn't. A, you know, isn't. A, he's not going to be guarding the threes or fours. I mean, Matisse Thybulle was their best option to defend fours last last year off the bench. Um, and whatnot, and so yeah, I think I think that that matters. Like I think a guy that you can at least trust to play some minutes in the bench rotation um, with size and can shoot as well uh, is important. And yeah, just just to get a little more specific on the synergy stuff, uh, 86th percentile on no dribble jumpers because spot ups do include like obviously you know but spot ups for anyone curious do include when you attack the basket off of a spot up. Um, so sometimes the spot up it doesn't just mean oh he ranked in the 85th percentile on shooting the ball when on a spot up volume, but clearly still very good in that regard as well. Um, and I think that that's interesting the the ranking of six and shot making because you could think okay yeah he shot 
shot 42.5% from three last year, but the Jazz offense was a juggernaut with ball movement and motion and whatnot. So maybe it overstates him because he was just getting quality look after quality look. But when you get into a metric like that, that takes into account, you know, context more. Um, that is interesting. That, that's, that's useful because part of the reason or much of the reason Mike Scott was a rotation player um, or a solid rotation player after he was traded involved in the Tobias Harris trade is because he shut the lights out and provided a floor spacing option from the four position who would just take, shoot the ball when it was, you know, when the ball swung around him and they needed that um, on that team that had Jimmy Butler and Ben Simmons and, and Joel. Um, and even Tobias is a guy who prefers to take some dribbles and be methodical. So um, point being is a guy that can, with size, who can space the floor, one is just always probably going to be have some sort of utility in the NBA, but two, especially for the Sixers, because that's an archetype they've missed for a couple of years as Mike Scott has unfortunately struggled with some knee injuries and whatnot and really declined as a rotation player. Um, but with the shooting specifically, do you think there's any, like, is he strictly a spot-up guy? Is there any level of versatility to him or based on what you've seen, um, like how can you deploy his shooting or is it more of just kind of a, a release valve when someone else, you know, shifts the defense and the ball can swing around to him? So I actually, I mean, so the reason I brought up um, the spot-up numbers, and that's a great point by you, it's you're including, like, attacks to the basket off of, um, like, basically catch and rips, is that he's not necessarily somebody who is so limited when he catches the ball, um, how do you say this, um, in a spot-up situation where it's just, like, he's either shooting a wide-open um, spot up or there's nothing he can do in that jazz system. If you, if you watched it, they were attacking closeouts. You, you were taking a dribble or two dribbles at the defense and trying to get something, you know, it, you get thrown into the blender as a defense as it were. But so he's a guy who can do not necessarily a lot of that, but if he gets chased off of the line, he can, pump and go or catch and go and then make the next pass and keep moving the ball along. And I think that has great value because not every guy who can hit open shots can do that. As for um, the other, like I was thinking about it in a completely one dimensional sense is that like, I was imagining the sets that they ran, you know, the, slice screen the screener action that they ran of a lot and that they ran a lot in the playoffs mm-hmm. it's you Seth Curry will set a back screen for Ben or Tobias and mm-hmm. cut um in a diagonal so he can go to the low block and then they'll like split off of that action or somebody sets every now and then Joel got a lob from that <laughs> right mm-hmm. but like when you have a player like Niang who can continue to space the floor and you know his gravity keeps his defender from sucking all the way in that just generates more stuff on the inside for everybody else it generates more room and so even if you don't think about him in movement in space or like cutting and things like that just as a threat to stand there like that's that's i think good enough and like we're not talking about his defense yet, but you're not giving up as much um, when you have a guy that big. So length and size still matters in the league. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And just um, for anyone curious, if you're looking for you know a a way to conceptualize, not conceptualize, just know exactly the action that Evan is describing. Um, Dan Olinger on Twitter, that's at Dan underscore Olinger, did a great breakdown 
um, of it after game three. The Sixers ran a ton, got a bunch of different variations out of it. Um, so if you just search Dan Dan's handle on Twitter uh, and Chicago, uh, it's one of the first things that comes up. He did a great video breakdown of it. So um, just want to give kind of an actual thing to look at there. People are curious about that set because it is a staple of their of their offense, and they ran it quite a lot in the playoffs. As Seth Curry turned into his he turned into his brother during the during that second round, especially um, in a lot of ways, but. Uh, yeah, I think I think that that's important too. Just you know, having that level. I mean, just shooting gravity too, like something with with Niang with size is important. And I think Niang can provide that in some sense. Um, like I, I really like this pickup for them. Uh, and I do want to just to get into the details. Uh, Andre Drummond is on the veteran minimum, which is worth about two point three. Uh, Niang, according to Mark Stein, uh, is on a two year six point seven million dollar deal. So. Um, that'll be used as part of their, their taxpayer mid-level exception, which Kyle Newbeck reported. So um, they will have about 2.5, 2.6 left uh, if they want to sign someone. Um, but just want to get to the nitty-gritty there because I think that's important as well. Um, anything else? To, and I and also, I'm kind of all over the place. I apologize. Evan, I apologize for anyone listening. Um, a lot of different things I want to cover about these two, uh, these two, these two uh, phrases. But um, I love the point about keeping the ball moving because I think that's something I think the Sixers really needed more of. I think that's what they wanted out of George Hill because George Hill is a pretty good, heady, you know, kind of connective player. Um, unfortunately, wasn't able to provide that for them, but I, I think Yang can offer that in some ways. That's something that they kind of, if you're looking at things the Sixers are missing offensively beyond just, you know, a bona fide perimeter shot creator, um, that's another thing. It's just smart, good play linkers or ball movers. Um, play linkers, I think that's really kind of come into the lexicon last year or so. Um, and I think Niang can provide that in some sense. But uh, before, is there anything you want to add about his, his offense or his offensive fit before we shift to your your perception of his defense and how he might work well in the Sixers scheme or you know complement their key players? He's a he's a solid screener, which is it's <laughs> it's not something that I think a lot of people will really like, be paying attention to, especially since he's you know the eighth or ninth guy, but. <laughs> When he sets those screens, being a shooter is is it, and having that gravity is itself like added value to setting screens. But the fact that he is a good screen setter, in addition to like having that gravity, improves his it makes him more of a threat in that way. Mm-hmm. So yeah, um, ab- absolutely. Yeah, and, and I think I think that's important because when you look at things for the Sixers. Lens, yes, it'd be great if they didn't if they didn't play four or five bench players at a time. But that's who Doc Rivers is. That's what he like to do. So any sort of advantage that a bench player can create that doesn't rely on you know taking your man off the dribble because they don't have. I mean, Tyrese Mack is their best option for that, um, but they don't really have a ton of advantage creators on the entire lineup roster, especially off the bench. And so someone who can create screens and maybe tilt the defense with his own shooting gravity is a really useful thing. Um, and so I, I think that's a great point. Yeah, it's not not the most flashy thing. It's not what people are going to notice off the top. But um, that's something that Dwight helped with last year. Is, you know, he had a lot of illegal screens, but he also helped create a lot of advantages and pick and rolls, whether it was Shake Milton, Tobias Harris, Tyrese Maxey at times. Um, just the ability to create advantages that don't involve turning the corner individually by getting your shoulder past your assignment is, is useful, especially in the Sixers context. But um, let's get to the defense. What do you make of his defense? How is he best optimized? Or as he optimized, best optimized is redundant. Um, what's kind of the, the path for Niang to be a, a viable defender and and just make sure that his, his impact is is useful on that end for the Sixers next season? So he's not special in any way defensively, and like that that sounds overly harsh. So I apologize. <laughs> but he, if he was a good 
defensive wing, then mm-hmm. he'd be he'd have been that defensive wing that everybody said that Utah needed after Royce O'Neal, <laughs> right? So he's not he's not also he's also not necessarily a guy that you can go at and you'll be able to get great success going at every time unless you're you know, a Kawhi Leonard or a Jimmy Butler, but those guys will make a meal out of just about whoever. <laughs> so he's he's not <laughs> it's it's so simple to say. He's not bad, he's not good, but <laughs> the value of like Niang having played in Utah, having been a defender in the Utah system, is that he has a level of aggression and ability and he does see plays as they're happening. So he had a bunch of timely, his hands are in the right place at the right time. He had a bunch of timely steals in the Clipper series before, you know, he got <laughs> played. He, you didn't say yeah. it, but I'll say it. he got played off of that, out of that. I just, series. I just couldn't remember. I, I remember, I remember one like brutal stint in one of the games they lost uh, when it was still like two, one or two, two. I, but I, I just didn't remember the, the last couple of games they lost, if he was in the rotation or not. But, uh, but yeah, that, that, that does sound correct. Apologies for cutting you off, but continue with the Nguyen uh, defensive Oh, analysis. no, no. No, no, And so, um, he, so I think if if you're a Jazz fan, the thing you remember about Georges Niang is that in the key game, I can't remember um, if it was game three or game four, but it was, um, it was in LA. He came up with, I think, two or three possessions where he, he came up with the ball um, just because of his length. He was able to pick off a pass, and he tried to make a pass that was a little out of his wheelhouse. <laughs> it was probably the right pass, but it resulted in a turnover, and the Clippers scored. And so, you know, you're looking at the type of player who you don't want to overextend offensively, but defensively, he's used to having somebody on that in that back line that's going to erase a bunch of his mistakes, mm-hmm. and that's largely what he has with Joel. And I like, I mean, I mean, I don't know where we settled on with the Drummond thing, but like, you know, Drummond's big, he's, he's back there. So, <laughs> so if you can weaponize that aggression, he knows what he's doing and he knows where he's supposed to be at. So he's not mm-hmm. going to whiff very often. He's not a gambler in any sense, but he does provide, like we talked about earlier, he does provide some much needed size after, um, Korkmaz, who, you know, is, I don't actually know if he's, he's listed as 6'7", but I don't, I don't know if that's fair. I don't know if yeah, that's true. I, yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't want to out Kirk on Korkmaz, who was a delightful player to watch, honestly. Um, but I, my, I would skew closer to 6'5", six, 6'6". Six, six. Um, Kirk, on a, for whatever reason you're listening to this, feel free to, uh, you know, provide some light or some, or, you know, call me out, whatever you want to do. Um, but yeah, I think, I think that matters. Absolutely. Um, just having more side, I mean, we've talked about it, but they, I've probably talked about that on four or five different podcasts over the last six or eight weeks. Ever since this, not eight weeks, ever since the Sixers season ended, I've talked about we needed more size off the bench or playable size. Um, and, and Niang provides that. And, and my my assessment of of Niang defensively is, um, I think he is a. Pr- and, and you can correct me. You're offering any any kind of bouncing off of that. Um, you can bounce around to to say. Um, <laughs> uh, sorry, I'm all I'm all full of puns these days. Um, but. He's a smart team defender who can make some rotations, but he has limited mobility, and that prevents him from making every rotation he sees or knows should materialize. And then on the ball, like he's not ter- he's not a terrible mover, um, but sometimes he can be a little like sometimes closeouts aren't really great for him because he has he has struggles kind of you know 
controlling his momentum one way and then you know, containing the drive. Um, and then maybe I'm, occasionally some switches, um, I can really um, be, you know, to use, to use our phrase, be put in a blender, but that's not the, that's not the, what's the, that's not the usual occurrence for him. So um, is that a fair assessment? Like he's a smart team defender, makes some plays, but mobility limits him in terms of how much ground he can cover. And then he's okay on the perimeter, but um, in certain matchups, he can definitely be uh, a liability in kind of those ISO or those pick and roll situations. Yes. And I'm, okay. I mean, I think that's, that's a lot of average NBA players, right? But I think <laughs> yeah. the important thing about Niang is he is neither a plus nor a minus in most situations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's all about it's all about the construction around him, and for the most part, I think the 76ers will be able to not necessarily hide what he's weak at defensively, but they'll keep him out of those situations where you know he's out on an island. Yeah, and I think I think what will help team mention him being him being comfortable with it an all-world rim protector behind him. He had that in Utah with Gobert when they would play together. Um, and he, he'll have that when Joel plays with him. And I think he will play a good bit with Joel because they'll like to have a floor spacer um, alongside him you know, in certain lineups. I don't know how much because, again, Doc, Doc loves his bench lineups. I mean, I've probably used that phrase, some variation of it, a ton on this podcast. But um, I do think you'll see that kind of that front court floor spacing partner alongside Joel. Um, and that, that benefits Joel offensively, and it'll benefit Yang defensively. So um, I think that's that's an important thing for sure. Um, anything else you want to add about Niang? I think like we've really covered these two bench, uh, you know, close to minimum con- contract signings and quite uh, – quite depth, but anything you want to add about Niang on either end that you think, you know, we haven't quite addressed or haven't presented the, the proper language of a question to, uh, you know, pr- uh, I guess, produce a, produce a point. No, I mean, the only thing I would like to throw out is that I've been watching Doc Rivers and breaking down his, his playbooks for a long time. If there's one thing he loves, it's weaponizing a shooter. And <laughs> Niang is very much a guy who fits in that mold. So I'm excited to see what happens with them. Yeah, absolutely. And I think just, I mean, he, he has a history with Mike Scott. He tried to, he wanted Mike Scott to be a rotation player for a lot of the year before he had to abandon ship on that, unfortunately. But I think, you know, point B, it seems like he has an affinity for, you know, floor, front court shooters. And that's what Yang is. And Yang is a better player than Mike Scott. He gives them some much needed size off the bench. Uh, and so I think Yang will, will factor prominently into their, what the bench can do next year, um, which was obviously part of the issue last year. Um, wasn't the grand, greatest issue, but, um, Doc's devotion to the bench, um, you know, was part of their downfall. And so, if you can upgrade the bench, that makes that makes you better. Um, but yeah, Evan, really appreciate you coming on, um, providing a ton of insight about both Drummond and the Yang. Um, anything you want to plug before we uh, we hop off for the afternoon or evening? No, I mean it was my pl- well. I mean, you said it at the top of the show. You can find it. Um, it's linked. It, um, my YouTube channel has. Just about everything I provide <laughs> bouncing around, which is, you know, an NBA breakdown show. Um, I break down sets with the great Samson Folk, terrific writer. I also do WNBA stuff with Sabrina Merchant. Um, and it's all on my YouTube channel. My player videos, which if you're a 76ers fan, you might have already seen my Joel Embiid, like mid-range slash face-up video <laughs> from earlier this year. So all my stuff is there. Yeah, uh, and if you want to follow Evan on Twitter, you can do so at Evan underscore Gual. That's E-V-I-N underscore G-U-A-L. His YouTube is linked right there. Um, Cannot recommend enough listening to what he and Samson do on Bouncing Around as well, what he and Sabrina do with the WABA content. 
tons of really insightful X's and O's and fun musings. Um, Samson is quite the character and a wonderful writer, as uh, Evan said. Uh, and Sabrina is phenomenal with her WNBA coverage as well. So definitely check that stuff out. Um, for everyone listening, whether it's the podcast or the stream currently, I'll be back sometime this weekend to maybe give a more gr- broader recap of what the six have done in free agency. Uh, but in the meantime, stay happy, stay healthy, stay safe. I will talk to all of you again soon.